0: Word on health with Paul Pennington. Feel very best of health. The first drug treatments for deadly aneurysms could be on the horizon, according to research part-funded by the British Heart Foundation. The researchers are led in the UK by Professor Matthew Bowne, British Heart Foundation Professor of Vascular Surgery at the University of Leicester. Professor, to start with, for those of us who aren't aware, what are abdominal aortic
1: aneurysms? Basically a swelling of the main blood vessel in the back of your abdomen that carries blood from your heart to the rest of your body. And as it passes through the back of your abdomen, this is a common place where it can basically stretch up. And what happens is as the wall of the aorta gets a bit thinned and weakened, It can't hold the pressure quite so well, so it swells up. That's really what an aneurysm is. It's a swollen blood vessel. If they get too big, they can actually burst and cause internal bleeding.
0: How many people across the UK develop an abdominal aortic
1: aneurysm? What we know is that in the UK, we have a screening program. Men aged 65 are invited for an ultrasound scan to check them for an aneurysm. And in those men that attend, just under one in a hundred will have an aneurysm. What that doesn't tell us is how many people who don't attend have an aneurysm. It may be more. And also, we don't really know the figures for women at present. Women are less likely to get an aneurysm than men, which is why the screening program is for men only at the moment. What are the risk factors? It's most common in those over the age of 65. You can get it in younger people, but it's rare. If it does occur in younger people, then it's quite often due to a sort of true genetic disease, i.e. one of these diseases where you will inherit from your parents if you inherit a single gene. The older you get, your aorta naturally gets a bit bigger with age anyway. All of the other things we know about are things we call associations. So we know aneurysms are more common in certain groups. We know that people who've smoked in the past or are currently smoking are at higher risk of having an aneurysm. And we know that men are at higher risk of having an aneurysm. If you look at all the research studies done there's things like high blood cholesterol high blood pressure things like that that have been linked to aneurysm but it's not absolutely certain whether those risk factors definitely cause the aneurysm or they're just more common in people with aneurysm
0: how are abdominal aortic aneurysms graded
1: the highest risk aneurysms are those that are the largest ones. We grade them by measuring the size of the aorta and this is actually quite a simple thing to do and it's pain free and it can actually be done using portable ultrasound scanners. We know that small aneurysms and by small what we really refer to are those that are less than five and a half centimetres. Small aneurysms are very very low risk of causing any problems through bursting or leaking and so people with small aneurysms are just monitored over time. We save surgery for those people whose aneurysms are larger where they really risk of the aneurysm bursting and causing internal bleeding is greater than the risk of surgery. Surgery is very good, but there are risks with surgical procedures. Surgery isn't for everybody and not all people will benefit from having an operation. And some people are better off not having an operation and it would be much better if we could avoid surgery in people if possible.
0: There are currently no treatments to slow the progression of small aneurysms. As I highlighted in my introduction, the recent research
1: you've been involved with may change all that in the not too distant future. We've looked at the genetic of disease. One of the risk factors we haven't talked about is the fact that aneurysms can run in families. With that knowledge over the last 10 years or so, we've collected DNA samples from a large number of people with aneurysms and also people without. And what we've done is we've compared the entire genetic information. And through that process, we've massively increased our knowledge around what are the genetic causes of aneurysm to be able to pick out some areas that look like we can target to develop new drug treatments. One of the areas of the genome we found that was associated with the disease was in a gene that's associated with the way our bodies handle cholesterol. And there's now drugs being developed that can influence the way our bodies handle cholesterol using that pathway. And the same drugs that we use to drive down cholesterol could be tested to see if they prevent the aneurysm progressing. So that's one important area of research, developing new treatments. The other thing we can do with this information is we can actually start looking at what an individual's risk is for this condition to refine and improve the way we screen for aneurysm. My grateful thanks to Professor Matthew Bowne,
0: British Heart Foundation Professor of Vascular Surgery at the University of Leicester. To find out more, visit our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Across my 25 years of health broadcasting, one of the greatest achievements I've seen is the change in attitudes towards mental health in the general population. Helped in recent times by the focus of the Prince and Princess of Wales, we're slowly starting to break down the taboos and start to understand those of us who have gone through, or are going through, challenges to our mental health. But, it has to be said, there are pockets of resistance that a new scheme, Mohammed's Mental Health Campaign, is hoping to address. Trainee, human rights lawyer and mental health campaigner Mohammed Sabahuddin Rafiuddin
2: is the driving force behind the initiative. The reason why I've launched this campaign is twofold. And the first reason is to use my experience of suffering from severe depression, anxiety and psychosis, which left me bedbound from 2013 to 2020, all of which had such a huge huge impact in my life. But during those 10 years, I've gained so many valuable lessons that I wish to share with other people who are going through what I went through to help as many people as I can, to inspire them, to show them, look, you may be going through a difficult time. I went through 10 long, difficult years, but I overcame it at the other side. And to give them practical tips, practical help, practical guidance that they too can overcome their struggle and their hardship and their circumstances. And the second part of this campaign is to campaign for politicians to improve access to mental health care that is available for more funding into mental health care as well as more funding into mental health research so that the public can understand mental illness, have a clearer picture of what depression actually is, what anxiety actually is, what psychosis, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder, all of these different conditions.
0: Delayed access to mental health care is sadly too commonplace across the UK. And I understand it's something you're all too familiar with.
2: Back in 2020, when I was at the worst point of my mental health crisis, I was put on a waiting list to see an emergency therapist. And I did not see my therapist until February 2020. 22. I had to wait two whole years experiencing a mental health crisis before I was even seen by a therapist. I want to make sure that this does not happen to any other person ever again. Who is funding Mohammed's mental health campaign? This is my own savings that I've put into my campaign. So this is pretty much a real example of put your money where your mouth is to try and educate about mental health. Are there certain communities that you're targeting with this initiative? This campaign is predominantly aimed at everyone who's suffering from mental illness. But research shows that Asian community, the African community, the Middle Eastern community is far, far behind the white Caucasian community in terms of understanding and dealing with their mental illness. Many, many people from ethnic minorities just try and brush their mental illness aside because of the fear of judgment, the stigma, the taboo that's associated with depression or anxiety or psychosis. They do not want to talk about it. Closest friends or family are left unaware of the pain and the struggle that they going through. I'm going all over the UK and I'm speaking to ethnic minority communities and telling them you have to understand the importance of mental health. Because if you do not tackle this now in the next 5-10 years, then your next generation and their next generation are going to suffer horribly. And we need to make progress as a society. As a British public, we need to make progress. By the end of my campaign, I want mental health to be spoken about the same way that you would speak about a physical health condition. I want people to speak about depression, anxiety. Schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, post traumatic stress disorder. I want these to become part and parcel of our daily vocabulary, and only when that happens will we become destigmatized from mental health in society.
0: My grateful thanks to Mohammed Sabah Houdin Arafi Houdin. To find out more, visit our website www.wedonhealth.com. That's www.wedonhealth.com. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Up to 80% of women with breast cancer are diagnosed with estrogen receptor ER ER-positive breast cancer. Whilst many are successfully treated with hormone therapies, some ER ER-positive tumours don't respond or build up resistance over time. They can come back, grow and spread. Professor Simak Ali and his team at Imperial College London, thanks to funding from the charity Breast Cancer Now, will be working to discover why some breast cancers are resistant to hormone therapy.
3: In recent years, what's happened is that there's been a concerted effort to try and find out what underlies this resistance. And one of the important mechanisms that's been identified is mutations in the estrogen receptor gene, which allow the tumor to effectively become resistant to the therapy. And so what we've been trying to do is to model those mutations in breast cancer cell lines so that we can understand how these mutations work. And then Identify the best therapeutic approaches for patients who come across with estrogen receptor mutant breast cancer.
0: What approach has your team used?
3: What we've done is to use cutting edge technology, essentially using CRISPR gene editing, which has been big news. There was a Nobel Prize for it last year, to generate breast cancer cells with these mutations. And so, what we can do in the laboratory is to dissect out the activity of these different mutations test different types of drugs to see whether those mutant receptors would be susceptible to other types of therapies which may already be available to us.
0: And what did this initial work discover?
3: What we found was that there are two distinct groups of these mutations which target different parts of the gene and some of those we think can be treated relatively easily with some current drugs but the other group are much more difficult to treat. And so we're now going on with breast cancer now funding to try and tease out the differences in mechanisms and screen those cells for liabilities. How can we kill those mutant ER cancer cells?
0: How long will this new research take?
3: So it is early stage, but I think that during the time of the funding, which is three years starting in in about a month, we think we will be able to get a very good handle on possible new therapeutic approaches.
0: And what could that lead to?
3: The next stage would then be in really trying to test these possible avenues through other modelling and then ultimately in cancer patients. So this particular funding is really going to define the mechanisms and point to the therapies that we could use and then subsequently 3 to 5 years it hopefully will be possible to use our findings in clinical trials
0: one final question professor ali knowing what you do can you envisage a time in the future when we'll be able to cure breast cancer completely
3: i think the surgical advances have made a, a big difference i think the key really is in early detection The earlier the tumour is detected, before it is spread, I think we get very good patient responses and the possibility of, of a cure. And there are a lot of new technologies coming in from, for example, simple blood tests to allow for detection very early, even before patients are aware because of a lump or because of what can be seen in mammographic screening. So that's a major advance. Beyond that, if we can understand the kinds of changes that happen when patients are treated with therapies, how the resistance arises and how we can overcome those resistance scenarios, then there's no reason to suppose that we couldn't have, even in the cases where patients relapse, other therapeutic options, that permit them to live a normal life and essentially a natural lifespan.
0: My grateful thanks to Professor Simak Ali. To link through to breast cancer now, visit our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. In the two main forms of inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, the immune system goes into overdrive, attacking healthy tissue in the gut. Inflammatory bowel disease can develop at any age, although one in four will be diagnosed before they're 30. And it's more common than you might think. Sarah Sleet is CEO of the charity Crohn's and Colitis UK.
4: Well, it may be surprising to many people, but actually over half a million people in the UK are currently diagnosed with Crohn's and colitis.
0: How does it manifest itself and what impact does it have on a person's life?
4: The gut gets very inflamed. It gets ulcerated. It's incredibly painful. But there are many other symptoms that people live with as well. It can affect things like the joints, your eyes. People report being incredibly tired, very severe gastric problems such as diarrhoea, but diarrhoea like you would not expect. So diarrhoea where you could be going 20, 30 times a day. Lots and lots of people will have problems with their emotional state as well because they're living with these conditions which are almost unbearable for some people. And of course they're progressive as well, often resulting in surgery.
0: We should also add blood in your poo as a symptom that needs to get checked out. Where are we at in terms of treating these conditions?
4: 20 years ago, there would have been very little you could do apart from perhaps surgery. Nowadays, there are some really sophisticated drugs. The problem is that you can't work out necessarily what the right drug is for every individual, and not every individual responds to the drugs that are offered. So for some people, eventually something may work, but even where it may work, often it doesn't work over a long period period of time, and then you have to be moved on to another drug. So you can imagine the impact on people's lives.
0: During Crohn's and Colitis Awareness Week, you're asking for people to add their voice to your early diagnosis campaign. Why is that?
4: Early diagnosis is critical. If you get diagnosed early, the need for the more complicated, the more invasive treatments is reduced. And we know that you can get back into good health and you can maintain that good health for longer because the damage is less in your guts. So the earlier we can get to this, the much better long term prospects there are for people who live with these conditions for the rest of their lives over many, many decades.
0: And many people don't get an early diagnosis, do they?
4: We know that something like one in four people would take for over a year before they get a diagnosis, sometimes many years. Often they end up in emergency care as a kind of crisis situation because they haven't been diagnosed early enough in that journey.
0: Where are things going wrong?
4: The first thing that we're trying to tackle is that not enough people recognise that they have symptoms that may indicate that they have Crohn's and colitis they put it down, especially young people. We all know, you know, oh, I've been out too much. I've eaten the wrong thing. I've been living it up a bit too much. So that's why I'm tired and my tummy is not feeling that great. And then I go on to Dr. Google and I try different diets, etc. So public awareness of the symptoms and the importance of dealing with those symptoms and getting to a healthcare professional is the first thing that we need to do. Once they get to the healthcare professional, we need to make sure that they are being assessed quickly and consistently in those primary care settings like a GP and they get into being diagnosed as quickly as possible at secondary care level by a consultant because that's where the final diagnosis takes place and it means that they need access to things like endoscopy, colonoscopy and of course we know that at the moment there aren't enough slots available for people to be seen quickly. So it's almost at every stage there's a barrier we need to overcome.
0: My thanks to Sarah Sleet from Crohn's and Colitis UK. To link through to the charity and to find out more, visit our website www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.